I'm Mark Gandy, this is CFO Bookshelf. We just interviewed Simon Wardley, the creator of the strategy mapping process called Wardley Mapping. The Wardley Mapping community is growing, and it's doing so at a seemingly accelerated pace. And one person we can thank for that is Ben Mosier. And I'm calling him the Ryan Holiday or Shane Parrish of Wardley Mapping. He's a great teacher of Wardley Mapping. His website is learnwardleymapping.com. And he has a great YouTube channel, and we'll be talking about it much later. Ben speaks with clarity, and even as I was listening to Ben a second time in post-production of the show, I took a ton of notes. So if you want to learn more about Wardley Mapping, you'll enjoy this one. Again, I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Our visit with Ben Mosier is around the corner. I want to reiterate that Ben is clear, articulate, and he's definitely a reflective thinker. I just had to ask him, how did he get started with Wardley mapping? I feel like this is the story everyone tells about Simon Wardley, but I found him on Twitter. And at the time, I I was kind of transfixed by the ideas, but I didn't quite know how to apply them. He was just kind of this background figure who always seemed to have something to say about the things that I cared about. And at the time that I was really kind of starting to dig into his material, I was uh, a configuration engineer, which in the work that I was doing, I was working in pharma. Uh, We were building IT systems to keep um, kind of developers developing and operators operating. And we were basically responsible for all the technical side of how the software got built, Um, making sure that our developers had what they needed, making sure that everyone in the process knew where to go to get information and so on. And so it was a big mess. And so what drew me in to worthy mapping was actually not just like the the idea of strategy, but actually the the need to answer a particular question. Um, Someone came to us, uh, basically said, hey, we have some some money that you can spend if you want, um, but you can only spend it on physical hardware. And at the time, like cloud was kind of a big deal, but it wasn't sort of, it hadn't penetrated our inner sort of world. We were mostly doing um, kind of physical infrastructure and things like that. So we were behind the curve. We weren't quite sure how far behind the curve we were, but we were wondering, wondering like, should we take this money? Should we buy these servers? Because it's kind of like free as in puppy, right? Like there's responsibility associated with buying equipment. And there was this nagging idea, like, are we responsible enough to take on this kind of task as our team was only two people big? So we thought, okay, this seems to be the kind of thing that one would be able to answer with a strategy. Like, it seems like the most basic kind of idea. Where should we put our scarce resources, time, energy, money, right? okay, where should we put it? Should we put it here or should we put it there? And for us, we had to lock ourselves in a conference room for weeks on end, digging into Simon's material because every time we would, every once in a while we'd make a breakthrough, every little kind of bit of progress would give us hope that we would find an answer. And well, let's just say we, we realized that after about a couple of weeks of this kind of exploration, the cause of all of our inner conflict around this was not having a deliberate intent for the work that we were doing. We were just order takers. People came to us with problems. 
They were, you know, they had different varying levels of pain that they were sharing with us. And of course we wanted to help them. We wanted to help everyone. But what Wardley Mapping helped us realize is that we did not have a strategy. We did not have an intention for our organization. And in the absence of that, we were going to continue causing ourselves pain. So that's how we started. Yeah. So, so Ben, you didn't do like a SWOT analysis. You you didn't do some type of competitive analysis. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to push back here. You didn't do those things. Well, we tried to solve the problems with different techniques for sure. And actually they're techniques that I, I think don't get used enough uh, in particular from the world of the theory of constraints. Um, some of your listeners may know Eliyahu M. Goldratt yes. wrote a book yes. called The Goal. Great book. Back in 1984. Fabulous book. Not the greatest like story, but definitely had the best kind of you. content. I hear you. And I, the theory of constraints was one of those things that woke me up earlier in my career to this idea of global thinking, not just focusing on the local part of the system that I care about, but zooming out and understanding how I fit into a bigger flow. And so we tried to use, um, there's a body of material that's affiliated with the the theory of constraints called the logical thinking process. Yes. We tried to do current reality trees. Is that Dittmer? Is he one of the... Yep. Right on. Bill Dittmer. And like we I have a copy of his textbook on my bookshelf and I kind of sometimes joke that it's my war manual because at times it's like, I have to take an extremely analytical approach to things. That's the the style that I tend to, to go towards. And so Detmer's analysis of a situation, I mean, it's a little like Goldratt was a bit egotistical and let me say that again. Goldratt has this kind of somewhat egotistical way of thinking about problems. Like there's only one, like place to intervene. And I think reality is a lot harder to engage with, but we needed people like Goldratt to set that sort of goal high, so to speak. Let me say that again. We needed people like Goldratt in order to set our sights high enough to believe that there was a standard like that, that we can meet, that if we could just get everything on the page, we could find the one limitation, the the one constraint on the entire system and so we did spend quite a bit of time making sense of the of the problems that we were experiencing from a flow standpoint, thinking about, you know, where, how the undesirable effects all related and what was the core causes and so on. And I'll be honest, like, it was, a, it's a great way to tactically intervene, at least in our case, but I don't think we had the experience to, like, we, I didn't, I wasn't a Jonah or anything. I didn't have any training to, to know how to frame the problem in the right way. And so I kept like hitting a brick wall and Wardley mapping felt like a complementary approach. Wardley mapping has this structure called a value chain and a value chain has a lot in common with a prerequisite tree, for example. Right. So I was already like, oh, there's an overlap here. Maybe I can reuse some of what I know, but add this supplementary kind of set of ideas so sure, I, I tried a bunch of different things. I tried to Kinevin my way out of it too. <laughs> I have to admit, I didn't do a SWOT diagram, but um, worthy mapping seemed to be something of sufficient complexity and more importantly, of the kind of frameworks that you would apply to this kind of problem. I love your YouTube channel. And you're not necessarily getting into a lot of 
what I call high-level, complex uh, problem-solving, which to me as a viewer and a customer of your content, that that's good. Would you say that worldly mapping works for any organization under the sun? Small, big, medium, complex, simple. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Okay, this is going to sound a little bit like every priest for every methodology that exists, but I'm going to say yes. But the reason I'm going to say yes is because worldly mapping deals first and foremostly with, I think, a philosophical inquiry into ontology. What are the things that exist? How do they relate? And what are they like? And what I find with most organizations that I'm working with, I mean, it doesn't matter what words are used, the actual ontology of what, what is in the organization, what people are doing, how they do it, what they know, and so on, those things are often implicit. They're often tacit. And without at least some agreement within organizations on what things exist, it's entirely difficult to make decisions about what to do or how to change those things. And even the language that we use becomes extremely, I'll say fuzzy. It's like, I'll say a word like digital and you will fill in all the meanings that you have for digital. And, and so we haven't communicated because the meanings that I have are different. And so defining vocabulary and defining what exists and what it's like, the, the what it's like part, which we'll talk about later about worthy mapping and evolution is almost like a checksum. It's like a, it's a way to confirm that when you say digital, you mean the same thing that I am thinking of when I say digital. And the truth of the matter is most of the time we're talking past each other, but I think worthy mapping helps us get past that by defining the ontology. We've already spoken to Simon. So this is a, a follow-up conversation. I want to pick a, I was going to say a fictitious company. You could say they're fictitious now, although I think there's <laughs> one branch still up. Uh, let's pretend like we're working with Blockbuster Video, which, by the way, I did watch the episode about Blockbuster on Netflix this past winter. Uh, let's say that Blockbuster has come to you, and I think, I can't remember who, is it Viacom or some big media arm owns uh, the intellectual property. And and by the way, they are still collecting uh, some franchise fees from that one branch. I think they're in Oregon. If I'm not, if I'm not, <laughs> well, good for them. <laughs> so if if someone like a blockbuster comes to you, and and you decide it, and they actually they 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 are explicit. They they want to use the Wardley mapping construct. Uh, where are you going to start 
with them? Are you going to start with uh, the, the circle, the, the strategy circle? Uh, you're going to start with the map itself. Where would you start with them? And by the way, Ben, feel free to use a, a, a it could be a coffee shop uh, if you want to, but p- pick any organization. If they want to come to you, where do you get started? Will you start with, hey, you might even start with doctrine, uh, possibly. What's the starting point? Oh, this is such a lovely question because it has so many good answers. Um, so doctrine, certainly, but not in the way that you think. So in, in Wardley Mapping's, uh, sorry, in Simon Wardley's view, strategy is a cycle. It is five factors, which he derived from Sun Tzu's The Art of War, purpose, landscape, climate, doctrine, and leadership. And just as a quick overview, purpose is the reason that you're even showing up to work every day and doing what you do. Landscape is your awareness of your surroundings, or in a business sense, the the market landscape that you're playing within. Climate is about the patterns that you don't have any control over that are affecting that landscape and that you need to be sensitized to. While doctrine is about the way that you kind of train your organization to behave. It's the building up of your own capabilities. And generally speaking, it's a set of principles that you can apply regardless of the context, regardless of the landscape. And it's not fixed. It, it can evolve over. Right. Absolutely. And, and then lastly, leadership is really like evaluating the moves that you can make based on your understanding of your purpose, based on your understanding of the landscape, and then how that landscape is being affected by outside forces, that's the climate, and then how capable you are. That's the doctrine side of things. You have to make a decision about where to intervene and why you would intervene in one place versus another place. And there's a whole philosophy into there that we could get into around conditions, consequences, thinking versus means ends. Um, There's a fabulous book that I recommend if you want to get into sort of the Tao of strategy um, it's called Deciphering Sunsa, and it's by Derek M. C. U. N. Fabulous book. And if you really want to get out of this kind of Western model of controlling everything and making perfect plans and getting more towards an, an organic approach to strategy that is, uh, I would say, more effective because of how long term it plays. It's a fabulous book to get into, and I highly recommend it. So where to start is a good question because doctrine is in all of this. Doctrine is what you always do. And so one of the first things that Simon recommends you start with is always know your users. And I can't tell you how many times when I go into an enterprise or when I work with a small startup or something like that, I ask people who they're serving by doing the work that they're doing. And there's no real concrete answer. There's vague hand-wavy answers. Or you might get three or four different inconsistent answers. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And different departments will have different ideas of what they're doing. And the worst version of this, in my opinion, is when an organization has lost purpose and has trained its people basically to to be helpless, to not have an impact on the world, to not feel like any of their work matters, what you have is a collection of individuals, not a team. You have a collection of individuals, not a company. And so the, what happens there is those people show up to work in order to survive. The people they're serving is themselves because that's the only thing that's safe. Beyond that, the second worst version of this is whenever it's all about authority. So if we can at least make it safe, 
to, to individually show up to work and get my work done. Well, the next person maybe I'll focus on beyond that is my boss, right? And so what do they want? Well, they're asking for something different today. Okay, fine, whatever. I'll do that now. But the best thing that we can get beyond that, I should say, the next thing that we can get beyond that is other departments that we're serving, other people in the organization who depend on us. And you can see how like gradually as we start to shift from this local kind of thinking of just me or just me and my boss or just me and my boss and the departments that we're working with, the larger you make that scope of how you understand how you fit into the world, the more you'll start to think about the global view and what's best for the whole system, not just your little part of it. And so, of course, at some point, you're going to get past the walls of the company and you're going to end up serving somebody outside the company, hopefully the customer or another actor who needs something from the organization. And I think what Wardley would say is that in general, the way that you make money as a business is by providing value for someone outside of that business's four walls. You make money by implication, not as the purpose in and of itself being to make profit. So when I say, know your users. If I hear an answer that is an authority figure, that's one thing. If I hear an answer that is another department, it's another thing. If I hear someone outside the four walls of the company, I'm intrigued. This is great news. You are looking outside the organization and you're right. Do we have an agreement about who those people are across our different areas of the organization? Maybe, maybe not. Is that important or not? I think worthy mapping is not an all or nothing process. It is a bit by bit application of making one or 2% better decisions every day. And by making this one change, by knowing your users, the kinds of decisions that you can make are going to be disproportionately better than your competitors who are not doing that. Even, even, and that's a great point. And even if you stop right there and didn't even get into the two by two matrix, well, it's not a, the matrix, the X, Y, X, Y mm-hmm. graph, if, if you will, we'll come to that in a minute. If you stop with the strategy circle, just going over the landscape and the climate, I think that is brilliant, provided, provided the CEO who should be thinking about that consistently is telling the truth to himself or herself at all times. I mean, it can't be this fictitious climate that he or, the, he or she thinks it is, but just the landscape and, and the climate. Have you gathered that yourself as you work with different organizations that that can be a big aha uh, for them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like One of the things that I think a lot about is that worthy mapping is basically a giant pile of raw material really good stuff, really lots to think about, lots of tools that we can make from that raw material. And worthy mapping is kind of a couple basic things, right? To make a map itself, you pay attention to evolution, which is a body of research that Simon Wardley went out and basically gathered around how things evolve under the forces of supply and demand competition. In other words, capitalism, how they start to be and change as they evolve from one stage to the next. And what that implies that you should do to them or with them as a result of those changed qualities. And so when you, when you just add that one part to someone's understanding of what phenomena they're experiencing in their role in the organization, they start to implicitly 
connect the dots, make sense of how things are different. And oh, sometimes things fail a lot and that's okay. And sometimes they can't ever fail because they ought to be certain. And knowing which mode to be in across that spectrum between those two endpoints is, I think, one of the critical kind of takeaways. Beyond that, mapping also provides a modeling approach for describing, I mentioned the ontology of the systems that we're a part of before, but really anything at any scale. You asked me before whether it can apply to any business, big or small, and the answer is yes, because the ontology is scalable too you're responsible for designing that ontology and designing that model. If you're working at a startup and you're making a software library, your ontology is necessarily going to be smaller and more granular and more tactical and detailed because the focus of the map would be that software library. But as you zoom out to consider the market that the software is going to live within, you start to encounter a lot more players, a lot more parts, some that are outside your walls that you need to be anticipating and taking into account. And then beyond that, thinking about the enterprise scale, you're dealing with multinational organizations with many different product lines. And of course, you have the question of whether or not it's basically behaving like a holding company where all the offerings are unrelated, or whether it's dealing with something where the journey for the users has to be coherent across those different offerings whole big mess there. And that's before you start to talk about everything the enterprise depends on that's outside of its walls and everything that depends on it that's outside of its walls. And so before you know, you're you're getting to the point where you could start to model even nation state level kind of competition. Like what's China doing as an organization? What's the government doing in terms of competition and using the market to benefit the, the government as an organization as well and the nation as a as a component in this giant global value chain, right? However you slice and dice it, you can start to understand things in more specific terms And importantly, in terms of capitalism, because like it or not, capitalism is here for now, and we have to accommodate the fact that it implies certain things will happen to everything in the world, regardless of whether it's in Genesis at the beginning of this evolutionary sort of shift, this evolutionary spectrum, or whether it's in commodity at the end of it. So that's my rant about capitalism and so on. But the scale is something that you decide as you build out your map. I'm going to interject real quickly before we move on to another topic. I do hope you write a book sometime. You've you've got a lot of raw material that is just waiting to be put down on paper. So I'm, I'm just saying, when you go to write your book, I'm going to be your first customer. Oh, that means so much to me, Mark. And I, and I, want, to gonna si- need- I, I want to sign copy too. <laughs> I'm going to need someone to come over and twist my arm to write it. <laughs> Saying it is easy, writing not so much. So I I think I have a few years on you. Uh, one of the games I played as a kid was Stratego, and it was a kind of a looking back, kind of a silly game. Uh, it had a board, uh, had little plastic pieces, and you you move. It is nothing like chess. Obviously, we play chess. May still do. Love the game uh, Risk, where you do have the map, the plastic pieces. That was fun. Uh, again, a little bit of luck, and I guess some strategy involved. So to me, it only makes sense when you're trying to figure out a strategy for a business. It makes sense to have a physical three-dimensional map, but yet it's always been this abstract concept where you've got ideas 
Maybe they get committed to paper. Maybe it's just something in the mind. It's something we'll all agree to. But again, the map concept makes a lot of sense. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the construct, uh, the mental model that Simon has put together. So on the y-axis, you've got value. The higher, I think, is visible. Uh, the lower on the scale of the y-axis is, I believe, invisible. And then on, it took me, I'd say it took me several months to really get the aha to this. But the x-axis is evolution. Uh, and, and think about evolution going from left to right. And sometimes it can be, sometimes you want to go to the right. Sometimes it may make sense to go to the left. And I think I saw that maybe on one of your videos. So I may have butchered it, but can you just kind of re-explain the concept of the map and why that's important? Realizing this is theater of the mind. <laughs> of course. Yeah, it, it is really interesting to describe because part of what I hope people take away from worthy mapping is this moment of, well, isn't that obvious? And I feel like I'm inspired a little bit by Goldratt in this. There, there, that, I was going to say his last book uh, on yeah. inventory. Isn't it obvious? Isn't that the the, the title? I think it, I, I, someone will ding me for not knowing all the Goldratt trivia, but it's his last one, I think. And I think the answer, isn't that obvious is what we're aiming for. Because what we find is that I was just having a conversation with Chris Daniel on Twitter, who's also very much into worthy mapping. Um, he He's actually the, the guy who invented uh, the Atlas tool, which is no longer with us. I'm getting sidetracked here, but great guy, um, knows a lot about mapping and has done a lot of the first explorations of this kind of thing. He, he was mentioning one of the things that's frustrating when you teach mapping to people is that they go, well, I already knew that. And I think like what, what Chris and I are realizing now is that, right, why aren't you behaving as if that's true? Like if it's so obvious, then you would be taking maximal advantage of it and you would be acting as if that's the truth. So part of this is a little bit of recognizing the way things are and how that may be different from the way we've been assuming them to be and then separating that from how we think things ought to be. And a big part of worthy mapping is about reducing bias. So yes, we do things special inside our four walls, but do we really need to reinvent the wheel for everything? Or can we adopt existing practices? Can we adopt existing solutions? We live in a world where there's an as-a-service as variant of just about everything right now. So looking outside of our, our four walls and seeing what else out there is, exists, and then really thinking of our organization as responsible for composing the parts together in a potentially unique way, but then also adding something that is uniquely valuable into that composition instead of having to build the whole thing from scratch, just having one part that we add that's valuable. And so really business as a minimum vehicle for new value delivery is, I think, an interesting idea. So the Wardley map describes what that vehicle looks like. It is, as you said, a graph with a y-axis and an x-axis. But here's the truth. The y-axis is actually a crutch. So this is one of Simon's secrets that he only tells you later on in his book, or maybe in a tweet thread if you uh, get lucky enough to see that fly by. The y-axis is actually um, not really there. 
What is there is a value chain. And a value chain is composed of parts and relationships. Which by, if I can just be rude and interrupt, you do an outstanding job. In fact, this morning I was watching, we'll have this in the show notes. You you were drawing a value map. Actually, I hope Simon doesn't hear this part. I think you do it better than he does, but go go on, go on. (laughs) I appreciate you saying that. I mean, Simon invented the thing, right? So he's got the orthodox way of teaching it. And I'm a facilitator by trade these days. I mean, consultant, facilitator, and generally educator now. But so, of course, I'm going to take a facilitator's approach to describing these kinds of things. So I'm a little bit more unorthodox in how I explain it. But the value chain is composed of parts and relationships. That, that's it, really. And what we do is we place those parts from left to right according to how evolved each of those parts are. So, for example, if one part like compute, like say you have a value chain for a software product, well, eventually you need some compute down there. So compute, if I look out into the wider world, is probably something that's in stage four commodity. It's highly evolved. And the way we can tell is because its characteristics show us that it's highly evolved. It's repeatable. It's high volume operations. It's low failure. And these are the qualities of stage four things. You used the word, and it's in one of your videos, choice. And I came there to go to the right or to the left. And I bet if you were to map out Netflix, we'd see it'd be so, it'd be obvious, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I love doing this uh, thing I call abductive mapping. So like abductive logic is about like, what's the most likely explanation for something. And so I'll go out and read someone's press releases and I'll make a map based on how I think they're likely doing something. Um, And the classic version of this is if you go to someone's sales page and there's a pricing table, well, that tells you that they're treating it like it's a highly evolved activity with defined pricing. Like it's probably in stage three product. However, if it's got a big button that says contact us, <laughs> that means that they're custom assembling you a quote, or at least they're pretending that it's a custom activity. And so it's likelier in stage one or two along the evolutionary axis. So it's a really important kind of distinction because when you start to categorize things like stage one and two are, are highly uncertain the only way to get one is to build one. You start to like bring in different assumptions about how to treat that thing. Like maybe we should be using an iterative approach to building that out using agile based kind of techniques because we need to reduce the cost of change because it is a high failure thing. It's going to fail all the time and we're trying to make it better. So of course we need to be able to change direction every two weeks based on new information. Whereas if I'm a power company, I'm working with a stage four in general kind of idea. I'm trying to reduce deviation. Why would I sprint around that? I'm going to make plans and I'm going to make small tweaks and I'm going to think very carefully about it because certainty is so high around all the moving parts. Now that does, you know, there are parts of the power grid that are perhaps uh, higher failure than others. I'm sure If you think about the recent events in Texas, for example, where you had cascading power outages that caught us by surprise, there are parts of the value chain that might be fragile that we're not aware of. And so making a map lets us go, the pain is there. If you lay out the value chain, so we, we talked about the value chain being parts and relationships, and then those parts being placed along the evolutionary axis from left to right, that gives space meaning. But let's talk about the value chain itself for a moment. 
So the value chain, the parts that we put in it, at first we start with a user, someone who's getting value from the whole system. And we put them at the very top and they're the anchor for our entire map because they're the people who are here to serve. They're who the system is designed to produce value for. And then we say, well, what do they depend on? And a likely story is that they have needs that they need met, they have pain that they need relieved. Something has to produce value for them. What is that something? So then we start, we have our first entity underneath our users and we have our first relationship. The user needs this entity. So going back to the Blockbuster example, if I am a patron of a Blockbuster, presumably one, the way one could frame this is I need entertainment. I'm here to get entertainment and to take it home and to watch it and enjoy it. And that's going to support my leisure time, et cetera. The way you choose to frame these things, by the way, is I think an, an act of deliberate design. And so you might find that instead of focusing on entertainment, you might focus on stress relief, for example, or another way of framing that same set of needs. But that's like your minimum map, right? You have a user and you have some sort of component right. that is producing value to them. I, I now have a new bias going back to your Texas situation. You have uh-huh. an unfair advantage, Ben. You're you're a you're an engineer by trade. You think like an engineer. I, I'm just a dull, boring, trained accountant. So your value map is probably gonna be more complete <laughs> than probably mine. So I'm just I'm just saying some people's could be I, I have again, I have a bias that I think your mapping is always gonna be better. Is, well, I don't think that's true at all. <laughs> so I'm gonna fight back with okay. you. I'm gonna fight back with you on this because all it takes to make a better map is to be curious about the world that you're in. And speaking of that, you made me think of something a few minutes ago. I would go back and find out from those same people who are struggling to provide uh, utilities, electricity, those types of resources. Did you not know the landscape leading up to this a year a, a year before, about six months ago? What was the landscape? And then what was the climate? No pun intended. I'd even go back there and what was going on and do we need to be rethinking something? Am I on the right track? I, I think so. In, in order to have those conversations, you need to be able to talk about which parts of the system we're referring mm-hmm. to. And the independence of Texas's grid, like I'm not an engineer from the power standpoint. Like sure. I don't know the, ex- I don't have the expert knowledge that they have. But one thing that they could do is they could make a map that models the way that power delivery and power generation works specifically in Texas, and then compare the way that it works in Texas to other states, other countries, et cetera. And what that would, what that would do is kind of create the landscape. Like I often think about making maps as putting the props on the stage for a play. It's like, we want to be able to understand the world that we're in. We want to be able to describe to each other what story is currently taking place. And so we need to be able to have things to hold up and say, this is the thing, this is the part that we're talking about, and this is what it's like, and then let's talk about it. And so I imagine like, if we wanted to get into design conversations around how to design a power grid, worthy mapping might be a very good way to do that because it would create the requirement of specificity of design, specificity of knowledge and terminology in order to describe exactly how things relate, but also to reveal where we're biased. Like we're treating a grid is a custom built thing, 
when we ought to be treating it like part of this nationalized infrastructure or something like that, right? So it's a prompt for those kinds of discussions. The entire point is to have good conversations, better questions, and those better questions had better lead you to better action. Should Worley mapping be taught in every major university around the country, around the globe? Well, this gets back to, I think, the idea of inquiry as the valued skill here. And that's why whenever you, you want to, comp- when you were tempted to say, hey, Ben, you, your map is probably better than mine. I doubt that because all it takes to gain asymmetry is to know things that other people don't know. And in order to know things that other people don't know, well, you have to be curious enough to go look where other people won't look. And ontology is, is about discovery. It's about uncovering what exists, and it's about understanding how things relate and what they're like in a way that other people wouldn't bother to go look and find out to to come to that similar kind of conclusion. So do I think it should be taught? Absolutely. I think philosophy should be taught. (laughs) See what I did there? So I think we should be curious about the world that we're in. I think we should design things on purpose instead of by accident. And I think having a a philosophical inquiry into what we're doing when we're building businesses, why we're building businesses the way that we're building them and what those parts are and what their designs are and what our intent is for each of those parts. I think if we could just become a little bit more intentional with the work that we do, the amount of suffering in the world would be reduced. I think we would do more things on purpose and cause more good than harm. And I I do say this every once in a while, but I think that betrays my optimism. I think humans, if they do things on purpose, will generally do good work. Matthew Stewart, he wrote the book, incredible book. He is a philosopher. He wrote the book, The Management Myth. It's the only business book he's written. Started out as a The Atlantic article, I want to say over 15, 16 years ago. But he would love uh, your answer. That's a book you should have on your bookshelf, The Management Myth, and he, he would he would applaud. He would be giving you a standing ovation. Uh, as I watch you on YouTube, you, you make this mapping look so easy. I mean, just simple. It's like I want to be like uh, Ben. But what would be? For, and again, I think every CEO. Now, when I say CEO, obviously everyone within the the organization. But I think every CEO should at least be aware of what worldly mapping is. Some people may have what I call. I don't think Kahneman has a term for this sophistication bias, but I call sophistication bias. Oh, that looks hard. So I'm going to ignore it. But what would be your advice to a CEO? Hey, give this some time. I'll let you fill in the blank or you can disagree with that. I tend to focus on individuals and the reason that I, so when I say individuals, I mean people on the line doing the work or middle middle managers, to be honest. And the reason I tend to focus on those folks is because they tend to be more willing to be humble beginners with this kind of thing. Now, I am only 30 years old, right? I have only been alive for so long. And so obviously I don't have as much experience as most of the people watching your show with whatever respective skill set that they have. But you speak like someone with the wisdom of a 40 or a 50-year-old. I'm just saying. Well, I I think that when we look at mapping, it's a process that has a guaranteed outcome, in my opinion. With worthy mapping, the process is guaranteed with enough time, effort, and energy. The problem is that is observationally equivalent from snake oil in a lot of ways, right? Oh, I just have to learn these ceremonies and do this kind of dance. Um, 
And so part of my work is to reduce the time to value. And if you're willing to give it a shot, then you can go on YouTube right now and find a 10 minute video. It's called the easiest way to do Wardley mapping and watch that video, follow along with a piece of a piece of pencil and paper. Wow. Follow along with a piece of paper and pencil. And if you don't get value by the end, or if you don't find yourself going, Oh shit, then fine. Move on. But he, I would, the only thing I would add to that would, you're still going to get something out of it. You're, you're the, the whole, that strategy circle, which is based loosely on the UDA loop, uh, which by the way, we, we've interviewed, we have interviewed last year, the author of the biographer of John Boyd. Mm-hmm. And we, we talked about the, the UDA loop, but th- that strategy circle is just brilliant. And I, if you're not, if you're ignoring that, there's something wrong, but, but keep going. I, I interrupted. One of the things you'll hear Simon say, if you listen closely enough, is his whole point is to rid the world of management consultants, or at least parasitic ones. Now, I am a management consultant. I went from being an engineer to doing consulting with Fortune 50 companies, doing large-scale work, large-scale transformation kind of stuff. I learned from the best, if I'm being honest. And I've worked alongside the worst in some cases. So I've seen the good and the bad of management consulting. And so I'm like, hey, hey, man, that's my job. (laughs) But what he's doing is he's trying to democratize strategy. And so maybe the less aggressive way for me to, well, this is not going to be less aggressive. When it comes to advising C-levels to dig into mapping and to just give it a shot to see whether or not it uncovers the kind of insight that they need to be having on a regular basis, he's not just eliminating management consultants. He's eliminating bad executives. Because the thing is, he's going to be teaching the leaders of tomorrow how to think. And it's going to be a lot more particular. It's going to be a lot more specific and well-reasoned than just making decisions by gut feeling or by what McKinsey said, or by, well, I shouldn't say McKinsey, by whatever your big four consulting firm of choice is saying. He's going to say, reason for yourself what the right move is. And if you're competing against those kinds of people, you're going to lose. So at this point, it's not safe to ignore this kind of method because this community is growing and it's growing rather rapidly. Like I'm surprised at how many people are getting involved, how many people attend map camp each year, how many people are even visiting my website. I'm, I'm amazed. And, and so I'm, those people I'm are learning. I'm one of Yay. them. <laughs> What you'll find with board mapping is that it is difficult. It has a very high skill ceiling and it's something that takes years to get good at. And what I would say is that that doesn't mean it's going to take years to get value from it. So if you can spend 10, 15 minutes making your first map and going through the opportunities table that I described in that YouTube video that I mentioned, I have like at least, I think it's at least an 80% chance that you'll find something that makes you I think that's a decent chance that you'll be able to find something that provides so much value that it's going to fuel your explore, your exploration into this method. You're right. For the next decades to come. I, I agree 100%. Uh, absolutely. You kind of, you, you're really, you're a little bit clairvoyant because one of my next, just have a few more questions, Ben. One of my next questions is why aren't more consulting firms jumping on this? And you've already hinted that, 
it's it's going to happen. But you've kind of already answered the question. Use the word difficult difficulty, and and it's almost like maybe some businesses they they want that they want that quick fix. They 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 want that they want to capture that lightning in a bottle, like right now, instead of learning something that's going to be immensely valuable over time. So I've kind of answered asked and answered, but I'll still let you add to anything else you want to. Why aren't more firms jumping on this? Because again, to me, it just seems so obvious. They are. That's that's the thing. It's just they're not talking about it. Um, when I So I have a website, obviously. It's, it's learnworthymapping.com. And it's focused entirely on making worthy mapping accessible about making it available to people so that they don't have to spend hours and hours reading the free book that Simon's written, um, that they can instead kind of have a quick experience and get the value from it or not and move on with their lives. Either way, I'm fine with that outcome. But the the idea that I'm starting to pay attention to is how many people are visiting the website, but also from where. And what's really interesting is the kind of information that leaks out through is super nerdy, but leaks out through the referrer. Um, kind of information that comes along with traffic. It's like I companies that I have no business teaching things to are picking up this method and at least curious about it. What I'm starting to notice in general is that not only these companies, but also consultants, a lot of my customers are actually consultants. They're buying the method because they need to figure out why people are excited about this thing. And so at the very least, they know enough about it so that they can trash talk it in the right way so that they can maintain their position of power in this you know, interesting dynamic of, of organizations relying on consultants to come up with strategy. Um, or I think, I think there's a, this other kind of set of consultants who are interested in learning it for themselves so that they can do a better job helping their customers. And I think that's a really, really interesting question because first of all, the design's that consultants make are not just strategy, right? They're, they're reports and assessments and they're you know, thinking about how uh, what, the, what the future might look like and so on. And there's a lot of interesting stuff that consultants can do with worthy mapping in order to d- deliver more value to their clients. But the second thing is they can teach worthy mapping to their clients. And what that's going to do is it's going to level up their clients and their, the, their clients' ability to think in terms of st- strategies and to go through the what ifs and think about different scenarios. And what that does is it makes the conversation between consultant and client less of a kind of um, paternalist talking down to the executive. Here's the answer that you don't know. And you hired me to tell you about and more we're peers and we're going to challenge each other in that way. Um, I'm going to propose something to you and you're going to be able to tell me as the executive, why I'm wrong and why I don't understand uh, your business. And in this specific set of terms, and then I can learn that as a consultant and I can pick that up and I can now provide to you an even better challenge because you've leveled me up. And so it's, it's getting away from the BS of belief that's not justified by reality and more into concrete designs that either work or don't. If I'm a small business, a mid-sized business, it can even be a, an NPO, nonprofit organization, they want to learn more about worldly mapping. Obviously, there's Simon's free PDF book. There's your website. There's your YouTube chan- channel, which I absolutely uh, recommend. What other resources? We've already mentioned a couple of books. Have we left anything out, Ben? 
I would say uh, Twitter is a fabulous resource right now. And so I think a lot of people don't understand how Twitter works. And it's entirely about social networks. Like, okay, obvious statement, Ben, what is that actually saying? Like, yes, it's, it's more than follower counts. It's about who you're following, right? And so what I'd start with is Simon. So at Swardley, S-W-A-R-D-L-E-Y on Twitter. And then, of course, you can follow me at Hired Thought. And what we can do is we can introduce you into this wonderful social network of people who are talking about using these methods and tap into those resources of people writing new posts, making new videos, building tools for worthy mapping to embed it into the organization. Like there are people who have built it into IDEs for software developers at this point so that software developers can write code that describes a worthy map and renders it out and then add that code to a commit message so that the reason that they made a particular change can be described with a worthy map. And like, there's this lovely ecosystem that's emerging. What better way to get tapped into a network that will level up your thinking than to engage with your peers who happen to be interested in worthy maps? And so Twitter is a great way to find those folks. And honestly, if you just say, hey, Ben, at Hired Thought, I'm looking for more people like me. This is what I do. At this point, I know enough people that I can go out and find you at least five or 10 people who might be interested in, in talking to you about the problems that you're experiencing. And please, please tell me there's no going to be no stupid questions. Oh, why is he asking that question? Anyone should know that. Hopefully that never happens, right? That is something I never want to hear that story. I absolutely never will tolerate anyone saying what, like the stack overflow effect, if you will, where someone's like, just read the manual, dude. Like, no, like we're, we're not, we're not going to do that. In our community, what we're focused on doing is connecting you to other people who are also interested in that stuff. We're less interested in intellectualization and navel gazing. We're more interested in pragmatism, finding out new information, learning things and applying it right away. And bringing other people in and being welcoming is one of my primary interests in, in this kind of work. Now, this is CFO Bookshelf. So you we have to ask this question. What are some of your favorite books? So besides Deciphering Sunset by Derek M. C. Yuan, I also am a huge fan of Edgar Schein's Helping. And it's a fabulous book that I think everyone should read about the difference between helping people genuinely and helping them. And I'm using air quotes here. Sometimes people don't want air quote help. And so being an effective partner in truly offering help involves a lot of listening, but also involves knowing when to write the, when to ask the right questions. And I think that book is by far one of the best reads, regardless of whether you are working at the front lines, helping people with tax season or whatever, or if you're dealing with the company's books, or if you're making very important financial decisions that are about the three to five year future of the company. You have to know when to help and when to make sure that you're not helping. <laughs> I have a note here at the end that says, let's plug the heck out of your website, your YouTube channel. Again, tell us where we can find you. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm at Hired Thought on Twitter. I would say to find the YouTube channel, I would search for that YouTube video I mentioned, the easiest way to do worthy mapping. And my channel, Ben at Hired Thought, will pop up. I would also suggest visiting us at learnworthymapping.com. And in particular, 
we've put a lot of work into it. And in particular, take a look at our events page, which you can always visit by going to lwm.events or going to learnworthymapping.com and clicking on the events link. lwm.events is a list of upcoming live streams, uh, the goal of which is to increase the number of examples of both maps that exist in the world and also the process of mapping. And we're also uh, posting workshops and practice sessions, including like half day intensives and things like that for people who really want to get a solid start with worthy mapping. So you can find that at lwm.events. So if I have a client or if I have peers, I have clients that want to learn more, is it okay that I send them to you? I mean, are you doing consulting yourself, Ben? So the truth is I'm actually trying to get out of consulting. Um, I am trying to shift my portfolio away from consulting and more towards doing this education. Exactly. Full-time And so what I would encourage you to do is go to learnworthymapping.com, find the chat icon in the bottom right-hand corner and just say hi. Or you can email me at ben at hiredthought.com or find me on Twitter at hiredthought. I am trying to make myself as accessible as possible to anyone who wants to learn anything about mapping. So any questions you have, if you want to share a map with me and get feedback, I will do what it takes to get you to the next step in your learning journey. And look, all the information is freely available, right? You can go read Simon's book. You can go watch any of our videos. You can honestly attend all sorts of free events that are happening right now if you want to get some hands-on education, hands-on experience with stuff. But if you want to go fast, we do offer some accelerators. We have an online course. We do offer private 90-minute sessions as a sort of a taster for just getting people kind of interested in that kind of experience. Like, oh, is worthy mapping for us? Does this provoke any interesting thoughts? And we can deliver that for up to 300 people or so at a time. But we also offer uh, more intense sessions where we just get you together to do the work. And by being around and offering guidance, we can more or less create the space for you to do the strategic work that you need to do. So we do offer those private experiences in, in, addition, in addition to the public ones that we offer. Ben, this has been fantastic. I want to do everything in my power to just keep sending Uh, people your way on these different websites. I want to do the same thing with Simon, obviously, but what you're doing is just phenomenal. Please don't stop. And I just tip my hat to you, Ben. Thank you. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that those people you send get value. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host. Mark Gandy. Phenomenal. Again, Ben Mosier of LearnWardleyMapping.com. Ben mentioned a number of references at the end on how to contact him. Those will be in the show notes at CFOBookshelf.com. Just head over to the show notes page. And while you're at it, check out the weekly bookmarks page too. In the weeks to come, we have a great lineup of subject matter experts. Next week, Geraldine Carter will be with us. She's a pricing coach for accountants, but her message is universal for all professional services firms. Christina Watke will be joining us to talk about her second edition of Radical Focus, my favorite entry point to OKRs. Bryce Hoffman, now he's the author of American Icon, one of my favorite books. We'll talk about what made Alan Mulally successful And we'll also talk about Bryce's newest book, Red Team Thinking. Now, trust me, that is a fun discussion, and I cannot wait for that show to come out. Chuck Coonrod is one of my consulting heroes. He's the author of The Game of Work, and Chuck has been called the grandfather of gamification. 
And also our July schedule has been finalized. Charles Rosati served five years as commissioner of the IRS. We'll be talking about his book, Many Unhappy Returns. Diana Henriquez is the author of The Wizard of Lies, a book that was turned into an HBO movie. We'll also talk about one of her other books on Black Monday, The Crash of 1987. Jeff Smith will join us to talk about his book, Mr. Smith Goes to Prison. And that was a book I had a hard time putting down. And we'll also talk about the docuseries, Education Behind Bars. And finally, Steve Wexler, a Tableau expert, will be talking about his recent book release on data visualization. Hey guys, if you love the show, please give us a positive rating wherever you listen to us, which means a lot. And once again, I'm Mark Gandy. Thank you for listening. Until next time.